I want to invite anyone who would like to, to come up front and sit in the front row. Uh, come on up. I could actually use a couple helpers, so if I could get a couple of you, that would be perfect. Good morning. And you know what? As you come up here, one thing I noticed sitting up front was that during the sharing of joys and concerns, a few people missed pebbles. Would each of you mind going and putting a pebble in the pond? Would you do that for me too? Just come on up and let's do this together. Because we, we hear these joys and concerns as a community and we can help each other out by placing a pebble in there. There, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, that's great. So just so those of you who came up, there were some big things today, but, but uh, people were in a hurry and forgot the pebbles, and I, the pebbles mean a lot. Um, okay, I think you're our veteran up here, so could I ask you two to help me out with the pictures? Would that be all right? So you guys already know each other. Do you think he'll mind if you do the picture and not him? Is that okay with you, Kiefer? You're, you're the birthday boy. <laughs> so, Clara, when I, when I ask you, can you hold that up and show everybody? And then, what's your name? Russell. When I ask you, would you hold that up and show everybody? So, and Russell lives with Kiefer. It's all clarified now. <laughs> All right, so Clara, go ahead and have a seat, and I'm going to get us started on this story. We're going to talk about the golden deer this morning. Long ago, in a magical forest, there was a golden deer. Clara knew her cue. I didn't even have to say it. <laughs> How about if you keep holding that up while I describe the deer? You can kind of see. The deer's fur was golden and shimmered in many colors, and its eyes were like gemstones. And the deer was very wise. The deer was brilliant, not just in how it looked, but it was able to talk. The animals of the forest, th <laughs> don't get dizzy. The animals of the forest looked to the deer as their king. Okay, you're gonna make me dizzy. Thank you, Clara. <laughs> so one day the deer was in the forest and he heard someone yelling for help and he went over to the river a man had fallen in the river, and the deer went down into the river, embraced itself, and let the man climb on his back, and he saved the man's life. And the man said, I don't know what I would have done. I would have died. I would have drowned. How can I ever repay you? So the deer said, thank you, Clara. You are so good at that. The deer said, all you have to do to thank me is never tell anybody Never tell anybody that I live here deep in the forest because I know humans and I know humans would kill me. So the man said, of course, my life is yours. I promise I will never tell. Well, not too far from that deep forest, there were a king and queen. And the queen had dreams at night that often came true. And the queen dreamed of a golden deer deep in a forest who was very wise and could talk. This was her dream. Would you hold that up for me, Russell? She dreamed that this brilliant deer 
came and spoke wisdom to the people of the kingdom. And she said to the king, I've had this vision. Go find that deer. I know it's out there. The king believed the queen and said to all the people in the kingdom, anyone who could help find this golden deer will be given a whole village and wealth beyond your imagining. The man who had been saved heard that the king wanted to find the golden deer. And he struggled and struggled and he thought to himself, if I had lots of wealth, I could make a big difference in a lot of people's lives. I think I'm gonna go ahead and tell. And he went to the king and he said, I've seen the golden deer. I can take you to the golden deer. So the king gathered up many, many soldiers and went and followed the man deep into the forest. And sure enough, there was the brilliant golden deer. As soon as the king saw the deer, the soldiers pulled out their bows and arrows and the king pulled out his bow and arrow and said, I've never seen anything like this. And the deer looked around and saw what was happening and said, I'm about to be killed. So the deer, who could talk, ran up to the king and said, my prince, put down your bow. And the king was so surprised to hear the deer speak that he put down his bow and all the soldiers put down his bow. And the deer said, I just want to know, how did you know to find me here? And the king pointed to the man who had tried to hide behind all the soldiers. Because as soon as the man had seen all the bows and arrows, he realized what a terrible, terrible thing he had done. And the deer looked at the man and said, it would have been better for me to take a log out of the river than to take an ungrateful person. The king said, what do you mean? And the deer said, I saved this man's life and the man repaid me by almost getting me killed. And the king said, this man should die. And the deer said, no, I think this man has learned his lesson. Please don't kill him. I'll go with you. It's more important to have compassion and to forgive. And the deer went with the king, went to the queen, spoke to the people, and they were so impressed by the deer's wisdom that they let the deer go back to the forest. But how do you think the man who told the king where the deer was, how do you think he felt? Sad. His heart is still heavy, and yet he's been forgiven by the deer. So hopefully what we take from that is the importance of forgiving quickly and moving on. The deer doesn't think about that anymore, and the deer's okay, luckily. Thank you for listening to my story and for helping with the pictures. You can take those with you if you would like. And I think now we're going to sing people to their classes. I want to begin with an account from this day in 1995 when a 7.3 magnitude earthquake crushed the major Japanese city of Kobe. And it stunned the country and the world. And I came across one survivor's memory, which I want to share with you. 
Her name was Aiko Hasegawa, and she was studying at a nursing college several miles west of Kobe City Center. She lived in a small old warehouse that had been converted into a boarding house for several residents. At 5.46 in the morning, the earthquake came with a sudden jolt. I thought it was major construction beginning outside, she said. I screamed, but the roar was so loud you couldn't hear anything. Once the shaking was finished, she was still in her pajamas and wearing just a pair of sandals on her feet. And she was stepping over fallen objects in the dark toward her room's exit, but she found she couldn't open the door. Something had fallen in the way on the outside. Luckily for her, one of her neighbors cleared the way for her to get out. I finally realized it was an earthquake, she said, once I was outside. With her neighbors, they decided to seek shelter at her university, and she described the horrific scene that they faced. The walls of houses had crumbled, water pipes had burst and were flooding the streets, and natural gas, which was commonly used in Japanese homes, was leaking a pungent smell into the air. And in the relative morning silence, she said, there were the cries for help. However, in an apparent disbelief of what had happened, she ignored those calls in favor of escaping, which is something she strongly regrets. She said, even though I heard various cries and calls for help, I didn't respond, even though I was training to be a nurse. She and her neighbors worked their way to the school, which turned out to be closed. She was worried about the safety and her friends of her family and friends who lived north of Kobe, but she soon learned from a taxi driver that she was actually in the middle of the worst hit area. They all, she and her neighbors, split up the money that they had and they waited in line to use a public phone, which was still working. They didn't have cell phones. They weren't common back then in Japan. Finally, after contacting her family to let them know about her safety, she wandered north among blazing fires. I took shelter at the old folks' home where I was working part-time and helped out there while I spent the night. Ms. Hazegawa was lucky. She had escaped unharmed. Many in Kobe were not so fortunate. Approximately 6,400 people lost their lives. 40,000 people were injured, and 240,000 homes were destroyed. The Kobe earthquake is also known as the Great Hanshin earthquake, and it was a real wake-up call for Japan. This was the biggest earthquake in recent memory, and since 1995, Japan has taken steps to improve both the warning signals and the infrastructure. Kobe itself, she says, has been rebuilt to a point where those who visit the city would hardly recognize that such an event had ever happened. It's always so hard to believe that when you get to a place where something huge has happened and you wouldn't know except for the plaque you wouldn't know except for the statue. Ms. Hasegawa, who now lives several hours west of Kobe, even says, I imagine the city has revived, almost like it forgot it ever happened. When she thinks about her own experience and the news of more recent tragedies, she says, the thing I learned was to treat the connection with your neighbors 
with special care. I think it's important to create an environment where help can be received if such a time arises. So, shake, rattle, and roll. Um, Steve and I sent some interesting emails back and forth as we were planning this morning's service. We were wrapping our heads around what people do when bad things happen. And for me, because I, I know a woman who had lived in Kobe, and so when that happened, I felt a special connection with a group of people there. The anniversary of that earthquake sets this day apart as a reminder of bad things and a reminder that we all struggle when we see that bad things happen to good people. But Steve and I went further on this theme. What about the bad when we have done something that has brought it on ourselves through our choices and our actions? Now you probably realized, maybe even before the beginning of the earthquake description, that this wasn't going to be lighthearted, <laughs> maybe. I think, was Celia the one I heard when we did the opening hymn? She said, well, that's chipper, or so that's <laughs> not very happy. Um, so I'm hoping to share some things with you that won't be entirely a downer. Downer was the word she used. Um, but I'm hoping to help us reflect this morning. And there are big flakes. I don't think any of the other windows are open, but I can see through the one back there. Oh, my goodness. Big, fluffy flakes coming down. Winter seems a good time to think about these themes. So how do we cope with our own imperfections, our own mistakes, our own lapses in judgment? And of course, these things remain connected. I get to spend time in Oklahoma, and many of you have heard about the frequent earthquakes occurring there now as a result of fracking. I was watching the Earthquake Tracker website as I was writing this, and Oklahoma, just in the past month, has had 216 earthquakes, 2,198 in the past year, 216 in the past month. I cannot know whether the officials who paved the way for fracking in the state of Oklahoma are wrestling with the consequences of their actions, I suspect. It's one of those things where it's a combination of many, many people's individual decisions that has led to this issue. Alain de Botton, in his book, Religion for Atheists, insists that today's secular institutions have an absurdly high and unrealistic view of human nature. In those institutions, we are each charged with the task of coming up with our own philosophy and moral laws. We are supposed to have the ability on our own to remember the key things we learn and to put these ideas into practice. You read it, you heard it, you know it, you do it. On the other hand, he says, religion includes rituals, habits, and teaching techniques that churches, mosques, and synagogues have perfected over centuries. For example, religions were smart enough to combine spirituality and eating, aware that while dining in a group, people tend to be in a convivial and welcoming mood. De Baton believes that secular people 
should create communal restaurants that mimic the Passover Seder, where atheists could sit at big communal tables and they could ask questions of their neighbors like, whom can you not forgive? Or what do you fear? He points to those traditions and those rituals in religious communities as a way of reinforcing the lessons that imperfect people cannot always remember. Religion, he says, begins with the presumption that we are flawed and that we need to hear a lesson over and over to have any chance of getting it. For me, the more I delved into these topics, the more I wanted to explore the experiences that we have when we become aware of our flaws or aware of something that we have done that caused pain for others. There's an author, Charles Glickman, who wrote a very compelling essay on shame. And it was connected to a program that he did for Unitarian Universalists on sexuality. He points out that in American culture, the very idea of shame is considered shameful. People have a great deal of trouble talking about shame. We use the words shame and guilt interchangeably, but he points to a set of ideas that says, shame is the sense we have that we ourselves are flawed, and guilt is a feeling we have that our behavior was flawed. That's an interesting distinction to me. But think about it. Throughout our lives, I would hazard a guess that many of us have talked at some point about feeling guilt. But I wonder how many of us actually out loud have spoken the words, I feel ashamed. That's a much more private and multi-layered and complex item. Those who study it would clarify that it has its roots in long-standing, ongoing messages that we received, often nonverbal messages and often when we were very young. Shame becomes a painful inner narrative about who we are. Guilt is our narrative about what we have done. When I, because I work in the field of mental health, when I have the privilege of listening to people share their personal histories, it often becomes clear to me that shame and guilt may be different things, but they become intertwined. You begin from a place of pain. I have yet to meet anyone who's come out of their childhood without some emotional bumps and bruises. And for some people, the wounds are very, very deep. The long-standing sense of feeling unworthy, coming from messages in their experiences with those who cared for them or maybe didn't care for them. And those people who cared for them, their experiences were often painful as well. It makes me think about the verse from Exodus, the sins of the father are visited upon the children, upon the third and fourth generations. In social work, we call that the genogram. <laughs> you listen to a person 
paint the picture of their world, and then you ask about the lives of their parents and the lives of their grandparents and the lives of their great-grandparents, and you can see lines of pain that come generation to generation. The bad things that we do, are they relative? Is there a continuum of harm? I'm fascinated by the experiences that people report just before death, that near-death experience people talk about, about your life flashing before your eyes. And I read an account once of a minister who was in a very serious accident. He experienced the whole thing, the tunnel of light. He saw images from his past. And then he had a very vivid experience of actually going into the perception of a young boy sitting in the front pew at his church. He became the young boy watching the minister scream a sermon about hellfire and damnation. He felt the terror and the hopelessness of that young boy. And he had never thought about his sermons in that way. He had been seeking to save souls and he hadn't thought about the fear and pain he was inspiring with his words. After the near-death experience, his messages changed completely. His messages became messages of love and comfort. It makes me wonder whose eyes I might see through during a near-death experience. So I'd like to carry us into that place for a moment, just like explorers. When I was writing this, I had the image of little Leif Erikson's into the turbulent waters of our emotional memories. So I invite you, if you'd like to close your eyes and just take a breath and just survey your images from your past. And look at the landscape in there for a moment. Maybe begin with images of the people who are close to you or who have been close to you. Has there ever been a time when you caused one of them pain? Some of you may be familiar with the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you have had an experience of living with someone who is struggling with alcoholism or addiction, you know that part of that illness involves them no longer being truly available at certain points for healthy participation in relationships or handling the activities of everyday life. The 12 steps provide one framework for people taking steps to address the pain they've caused. I would argue these steps are powerful and important for anyone regardless of whether or not we are struggling with addiction or alcoholism. In step four, I'm jumping around, but the recovering person makes what they call a searching and fearless moral inventory of themselves. Searching and fearless takes courage. The person admits to themselves and to another human being, the exact nature of their wrongs. 
And then they ask their higher power as they understand it to make them ready to do the right thing about those things. Step eight is really, as someone who's gotten to journey with a lot of people in recovery, I think this is one of the most powerful things I've ever witnessed. The person makes a list of all the people they've harmed and becomes willing to make amends. And then the next step is they actually make amends wherever they can. One of my favorite television shows is the wild ride of a show called My Name is Earl. Some of you may have seen it, and if you haven't, the whole thing is on Netflix, and I highly encourage taking a look, but you gotta watch it in order to understand. In this show, Earl Hickey has an epiphany. He has spent a lifetime not really caring about others and how he has hurt them. And then, in an incident that I won't go into detail about that involves a winning lottery ticket, the loss of the ticket, the recovery of the ticket, Somebody tells him a little bit about karma. Earl decides he has terrible luck because of the bad things that he's done, and he sets about making a list of the people he has harmed in his life, and he goes through the list trying to make amends one by one. So this multi-page document is actually the list, if any of you want to see it at the end. Um, here's some of my favorite items from the list burned down a barn at camp, cheated on a girlfriend and lied about it, faked death to break up with a girl, <laughs> got drunk on Easter, see number 73, accidentally started a forest fire, <laughs> never gave mom a good Mother's Day, stole a car from a one-legged girl, robbed a deaf woman while she slept, used a mailbox as a trash can. In the beginning, Earl is really just going through the motions, trying to make amends in order to make his own luck better. But over time, you see Earl start to develop connections with the people around him. And he starts to empathize with people. He starts to consider things from their point of view. Maybe you have had the experience, as I have, of being someone who's on another person's list from step eight in a 12-step program. In my experience, it's a powerful, tearful thing to have someone come to you and say, as I go through this process, I now realize I caused you pain, and I'm here to make amends if I can. You don't have to be Earl Hickey or suffer from alcoholism or addiction to have caused pain. We may have caused pain with something we did, like the man who told the secret of the golden deer. We may have caused pain with something we didn't do, like the woman in Kobe who still remembers the sound of the people crying for help as she escaped her crumbled neighborhood. Everything can turn in one moment. We may cause pain without ever intending it. 
One of the most disturbing things I've seen in the last few months was just a block from my home. I was driving on an errand, and right there along the road were several emergency vehicles, including an ambulance, a pickup truck with a trailer full of gardening equipment and garden waste, logs and branches, had lost control on the curve and the trailer had tipped its load onto the road and the sidewalk. And there was a woman looking at the pile of debris and crying and yelling. And there was a very young man, very pale, standing outside the truck with a police officer talking to him. The pale young man didn't look like he was hearing anything that was being said to him. An earthquake had just happened in this young man's life, this driver of a truck that lost control. One moment's inattention to the road, and a turning point came, literally. What do our principles and purposes tell us about navigating a moment like that? What would we do if we were driving the truck? Our first principle tells us that every person has dignity and worth, no matter what. Doesn't matter what we've done. Doesn't matter who we are. Through guilt, through shame, our first principle says we have inherent worth and as Unitarians, part of what we are called to do, I believe, is to help each other see the worth and dignity of every person, including them, including us, even on a day when we have done something terrible. Our second principle calls us to seek justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. If we are at fault, we must be held accountable. If someone has harmed another, there must be justice. We cannot run from the scene of the accident. And once amends are made, I believe our commitment to compassion calls us to seek forgiveness rather than vengeance. The golden deer in the story tells us, give compassion to all creatures and be quick to forgive. For compassion and forgiveness brings you freedom and peace. The golden deer does not say, ignore those who cause us harm. He does not say, pretend you don't realize you caused harm. In Buddhist practice, much of this comes down to an ongoing practice of mindfulness, of deeper and deeper awareness of self and of others. We have other tools at our disposal as well. When we have blundered, the 12 steps tell us the most important thing is to acknowledge we have done something wrong. Recently, a friend shared a strategy I thought was very powerful and helpful as well. When we have done something wrong, instead of saying sorry, see if it would be more appropriate, more positive, more helpful all the way around to say thank you 
instead of saying, sorry I'm late, saying, thank you for being patient when and waiting for me. Instead of saying, sorry I damaged the car, saying, thank you for helping me work through the step of making things right with your car. As I work with people on developing skills to make amends when necessary, one of the most difficult skills is coming to terms with the wrongs we may have suffered ourselves. People will say, why should I do that? The person who hurt me never came and made amends, never even acknowledged that they hurt me. There is no easy answer for this except that old saying, which I've shared here before, to harbor resentment against someone is like swallowing rat poison yourself and then waiting for the rat to die. If we live in a way that is still reacting to the harm another has caused us, we give them ongoing power. It is sometimes difficult to find our way to that place beyond reacting. The person who spent their childhood hearing from a parent that they were incompetent may have trouble learning that this will not be the message from every authority figure they encounter in our vocational programs. I see this all the time. The biggest challenge for people who've come from a home where they were chided and yelled at and screamed at all the time is helping them to get along with their boss. The person who spent decades in an abusive relationship may have trouble navigating a healthy relationship. Their ears are primed to hear cruelty. Ms. Hazegawa, the woman in Kobe, reflected on the importance of her connection with neighbors. She said, treat your connection with neighbors with special care. This part of her story spoke to me in a powerful way. The better we are connected to one another, the better able we will be to work together, both after a huge disaster like the earthquake, but also, I think, the better we are able to help one another stay on a positive path. Our friends can help give us warning signals when we are starting to veer off course. They can reassure us about our worth and dignity when we have messed up. And they can help reflect back to us how our life is really looking. Because in the end, we can't see ourselves and our own lives very clearly. It's one of the many reasons we need community. So back into our own history. Think for a moment, if you can, about a time when someone else ended up hurt, emotionally or physically, because of something you did or didn't do. Maybe this was something that happened long ago, and the other person is no longer available for you to connect and to make amends. And if that's the case, Maybe this memory can be a guidepost for your interactions with others, a reminder not to do the same thing again.
but maybe this person is still around. I want to invite you today, if it's safe and appropriate, to make a plan to seek out a person you've hurt and to talk to them about it. Maybe you can use the thank you tool. Today I was thinking about the time when I was very distracted by the things that were going on with my work. I want to thank you for your patience with me. Or maybe you can simply state what happened and how you are feeling about it. I was thinking today about the time when your son was so sick and you had so much to do taking him to treatment and managing everything and I realized I did not make time the way I could have to be helpful. It has always seemed a shame to me that the powerful discussions around the eighth step in the 12 step program are limited to people in recovery and their personal networks of friends and family. You might decide that you carry memories of a situation where there is no appropriate or safe way to make amends. And if so, let me be the one to encourage you to find a safe ear, a friend who could hear your story and at least give you the release of saying it out loud. We all carry memories of the ways we believe we may have fallen short, the ways we feel others have harmed us, all the ways we may have harmed them. I'll take another page from the big book and share it in closing as my prayer for all of us. May we always find within ourselves and find help from one another to have the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. <laughs>